Our text for this evening comes from Isaiah 52 and 53. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem." Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had not done violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We are nearing the end of our study. This is week 24. We have one more week of Isaiah. Uh, we've been looking specifically at Isaiah 40 through 55, which for those of you that are just joining us for the first time tonight, uh, we have been saying that this is a set of texts where Israel is in the midst of exile. They're in the midst of suffering. They're in the midst of pain. They're in the midst of heartbreak, if you will. The things that God had promised them do not seem to be true in any capacity in their life. They've been removed from the land. They've been uh, brought under Babylonian captivity. And as they look around, all they see is foreign gods, the success of the pagans, They don't see God acting in the way that he claims that he can and that he has in the past. This message in Isaiah 40 through 55 has been one of comfort, continual comfort and reassurance to this people that God is in fact doing something. Up to this point in the text, it's been mostly rhetoric. It's just been this kind of announcement of what is going to happen sort of fits with tonight as we celebrate the first week of Advent. Advent, for those of you that don't know, and actually this is my first time observing the church calendar, so I'm pretty excited about it, but this four-week period up to Christmas is a a time of expectation. It's a time of anticipation. It's a time of realigning and reorienting your life to 
prayer and reading and fasting and focusing on Jesus, not only in his, his coming as that eight-pound, six-ounce, glorious infant baby boy Jesus looking at his baby Einstein developmental videos. It's not just that. It's beyond that, seeing the life that he lived, um, the sacrifice that he ultimately would, would bring for us and focusing on that. I hope that for these next four weeks um, that we can align ourselves in those disciplines and also just align ourselves with a, a spirit of expectation and anticipation. My students like to refer to me as the Grinch. It was a throwaway day the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, so we were listening to Christmas music. They wanted to listen to Justin Bieber's Christmas music, which um, I don't know if that makes me the Grinch or just a wise person for not wanting to listen to that to put myself through that, but they had called me out on that, but now like with this idea of Advent and thinking about what Christmas is all about, maybe for the first time in my life I'm actually becoming excited about what this season actually represents. And it is so hard even now to not be consumed by Black Friday and sales and gifts and those things. Even, even family at times can become so all-consuming that we miss the true reason for the season. No, I will not start wearing that button that says Jesus is the reason for the season, but there is truth in that. And hopefully tonight this text can, can bring about uh, some good things for us. This is what one scholar says. This is Brevard S. Childs. He says, it is hardly necessary to remind the reader that this passage is probably the most contested chapter in the Old Testament. The problems of interpretation are many and complex. Even to engage the textual problems is a formidable challenge in and of itself. Here, in this text, it's one for a lot of Christians. We know it. We've heard it. Perhaps some of us, we've memorized it. Um, but this is one of the most contested chapters in the Old Testament. And one of the most obvious questions that concerns pastors and scholars and just general readers is, who is this passage about? Who is this servant that is going to be disfigured? Who is this one who is going to take on the sins and transgressions of, of this people? Again, for Christians, the, the quick knee-jerk response is, of course, it's Jesus. But remember, this text was written nearly 600 years before Jesus showed up. So I think it's important for us not just to go there quite so, so quickly. And also this understanding of who this text is about, it's not just a modern question. It's not something that we have just come up with in the last hundred years. We can see in Acts chapter 8, there's a story of Philip, one of the apostles, and his ministry to an Ethiopian who was an official. It says, And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. He says, Do you understand what you are reading and the, the Ethiopian responds, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This text, even back then, even some 20 or so years after Jesus, was wrought with difficulties where someone who was reading it had no idea what was happening. The text continues, and we're specifically looking at this set of texts that we're studying tonight. And the kicker is, after he reads this, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Even in this context, they didn't know who was being talked about. Beyond the identity of the servant, the content of this passage brings about its own set of issues. Issues that, to be quite honest, I don't feel capable to handle. And issues that I don't really think that we have the time to handle t tonight. But some of these issues would be, why does the servant suffer for the transgressions of others? What does the servant's suffering accomplish? Is this punishment just? Is it mandatory? Did it have to happen? Did it have to happen this way? What is God's role in all of this? If this 
sufferer is going through all these difficulties, what is God doing and what's God's relationship at this time with this person? Walter Brueggemann says it's one of the great oddities of Old Testament studies that the very text that is taken to be abundantly rich and theologically suggestive is at the same time undeniably inaccessible and without clear meaning. This text is something that people hang their hat on. This is one of these texts that people have been searching and delving into for many centuries. It's full of richness and theological truths, yet at the same time, people have been wondering what in the world is going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And perhaps tonight we'll see that maybe this is actually part of the beauty of this text. All throughout the Bible, think about the Psalms for a moment. The Psalms don't necessarily always name who the singer is. They create these scenarios, and the scenarios are brought about by I or we or they, it's oftentimes unnamed. And as we sing those psalms, we become the I or the we or the they. We inhabit that text. We go into the story. We're pulled into the narrative that that psalm is telling where we have enemies all around us, where we have physical sickness, where we have armies coming in, where we are just and we're wanting God to show up. We become, in a sense, the singer of that text. And I think there's a little bit to that where in this text, because it's not named with clarity in Isaiah 53, there's something to be said for people inhabiting this text. For some of you, though, when I say things like that, you don't necessarily question uh, this text. You don't think it's inaccessible. You don't think it's without clear means because for you, it's so clear. It's just about Jesus. It has to be. It has to be. It has to be. There's no one else who fills the text in this way quite so nicely. And I think when we begin to say that, we end up back in this art museum that I've referenced a couple of times where we're standing back and looking at this painting. And with this painting, we bring all of our presuppositions, all of our stuff, and we put it into the text itself. For some of us, the battles that we face are, you've been schooled in Christian education for the last 12 or 13 years. For some of you, you've continued on and done advanced studies, perhaps. For some of you, you've been in a church scenario your whole life. You've heard things. You've just accepted things. You bring all this wealth of knowledge, which is great, but you import it into the text without allowing yourself to think about it again. This is a painting from my dear friend, not really my friend, but Ad Reinhardt, who was an impressionist working in the 50s and 60s. Yes, this is a piece of art that is actually hanging in a museum. It's called Abstract Painting Black. Isn't it beautiful? I actually really love this painting. And yes, Hannah, I have hijacked this from you wherever you are, this whole thing. Yep, this is you. Facebook, thank you. Abstract painting contains three distinct shades of black. Do you see them? I'm colorblind. I don't see anything. It's just a blob. A beautiful blob, but a blob nonetheless. They become visible only after prolonged looking. Reinhardt was intensely sensitive to such subtle variations. Dude didn't care about form, didn't care about style, didn't care about how to paint. He just put paint on a canvas. And it was so subtle, he could play it off like, this is brilliant. And it kind of worked, right? Because it's, it's here. We're talking about it. He explains, there is a black which is old and a black which is fresh. Lustrous black and dull black. Black in sunlight and black in shadow. You ever thought about black that much? Probably not. When Reinhardt's black paintings were first exhibited at Museum of Modern Art, in 1963, their reductive imagery and stark palette. Reductive imagery, that's a very polite way of, of framing it, I think. 
they shocked visitors and they prompted at least one museum membership to be canceled because they thought to themselves, this is not art. That viewer, at least, was one who brought all of their presuppositions, all of their preconceived ideas, and they imported it onto the text. You do the same things. As you're looking at this painting, you see stuff. Who knows? Hannah on Facebook yesterday was talking about how her family was viewing this painting like actually in person. And I guess there were some frustrations when people were looking at the painting, so much so that an attendant came over and said, no, you guys are doing it all wrong. You're looking for the wrong things. And then he brought a kid over, and the kid said, yeah, there's a line there, and there's a different color strain there, and there's all this thing. And like this kid who had fresh eyes, I guess you could say, with no or at least less preconceived stuff, began to look at that painting in a different, totally different way. I think it might be best for us to approach this text as a child. I don't mean that we take our reason and our rationality and we put it off to the side. I don't mean that we take all of our intelligence and just kind of hang out over there for a moment. But I think that we have to leave all the things that we think that we know at the door for a moment to understand something that goes beyond maybe things that we've, we've heard before. All of our questions about this text will not be answered. A, because I don't know all the answers, and B, because we don't have the time in which to engage all these questions. But I do think that we might begin to see things that we didn't on first glance, especially, and here I'm talking to the Christian crowd that sees in that text, Jesus. If we go there too quickly, I think that we miss a lot of the richness, a lot of the colors, a lot of the strokes, a lot of that deep, rich imagery that occurs only after a prolonged look at this painting. Okay, I'm going to focus on two questions tonight. One is the obvious one, who is this servant? And in order to understand this, we have to think about context for a second. This text is not just a prophecy concerning one person, especially a person who's not coming onto the scene for 600 years. It's not just about Jesus. Again, as I've said, when we go there too quickly, we miss out on the richness of this. And remember, this story, as this text is showing up, is set within exile. It's set within a people who are in the midst of the proverbial struggles of life where they're in the hospital rooms, they're at the graveside services, they're at all these places that are making their faith questioned. They're doubting, they're wondering if God is still concerned with who they are. God would not show up and say, 600 years from now it's all going to be okay. He's actually talking about a context in their immediate future, which is going to, to help them. Also, as we looked last week, this fourth servant song, there's four of them in Isaiah 40 through 55. This is the fourth one, and I would say the climax of not only those servant songs, but this whole set of text. It's describing a movement from humiliation, which in this context is Israel's exile, and a movement to exaltation, which is their return home. I don't know how to put this into context. Perhaps it's this. On a very small comparison, some of you college students are anxiously awaiting Christmas break. Anxiously awaiting Christmas break. Perhaps I'm projecting. I am anxiously awaiting Christmas break. You give me five days off, I do not want to go back to work teaching high school students. I am waiting for this with, with some sort of passion almost, and when it comes, I'm going to be a happy person. 
I told you it was going to pale in comparison, but Israel is waiting for this return home, waiting for something to happen, waiting for God to move in a way that can't be denied, in a way that can't be uh, just chalked up to mere coincidence. They're waiting for all this talk to actually happen, and they want it to happen soon. Throughout Isaiah 40 through 55, the servant has been identified throughout as Israel, even if that group is reduced to one faithful Israelite. At times, it's just saying that there might be this one who embodies Israel as a people. Perhaps that's the prophet. Perhaps that's this group or that group. Perhaps there is within Israel a remnant. All throughout the Old Testament, they're talking about this one group who can identify Israel and be, in a sense, faithful, living in complete obedience and surrender to God. Israel is the servant, but they're not the servant just in this time of exile. Stay with me here for a second. They're also the servant who suffers perhaps even unjustly under the Seleucid rule in the second century B.C. So we have, as the, as the story progresses, we have Israel suffering under another world power who is looking to dominate them. They're also suffering under Roman rule in the first century C.E. They're also suffering under the Crusades, which is in thousand or so CE, and perhaps they're also suffering in the Holocaust. Perhaps this idea of a servant, a remnant within Israel has not, has not advanced so far where they can't identify with this even still today. As we see this text, we see different layers of people who are embodying this servant, who are suffering under this, perhaps so that God can, can work in and through them. But there's also a sense, and this is a safer sense, in which Jesus is the servant. Jesus was a man despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He, was, he has bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was oppressed and afflicted. He poured out his soul unto death. Jesus is the very epitome of this text. We see this throughout Scripture. In Acts 8, when the Ethiopian court official is wanting to know who this person is, in verse 35 it says, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Notice what Philip does not say, though. He does not say, oh, that servant, that's Jesus. He uses that story as a, a launch for telling the story of the gospel. I think this is really important because as people understood who Jesus was, especially in this context, they looked back on the Old Testament and began to see him in everything, not just Isaiah 53, but Exodus. They began to see him in exile and restoration. They began to see him in all sorts of things. Jesus became the lens through which they viewed all of life. We've talked about this in the past, and I think we could just pause there for a second. Our lives are easy at times. And at times, Jesus is not that lens through which we view things. Jesus is the thing in our back pocket that makes us comfortable. Jesus is that safe security in the back of our minds that we know will always be there. Jesus is that security blanket that allows us perhaps to, to do this or that or the other thing and know that we can receive grace through him. The question that's so um, pregnant in the room has Jesus transformed who you are to the core of your being so much so that you see him in all these different things, so much so that the stories that you hear, the stories of your life perhaps, begin to remind you of him, begin to point you towards him, begin to be those, those things along the way that make you reorient and remember love and grace and mercy and hope. 
Oddly enough, for us as a people, these moments really come when we're in the midst of suffering, when we are, in fact, in the hospital rooms, when we are, in fact, having those difficulties in marriage and work and school and relationships. It's easy for us to focus on Jesus in those moments. But in the times when we're comfortable, in the times when we're okay, how much of our thoughts are focused on him? Philip begins by using this story saying, let's think about Jesus through this story. For the New Testament authors, Jesus was the climax of the story. He fulfills all these things. And through his life, death, and resurrection, you could say that God is restoring. Here at this place, we say that God is restoring humanity to himself, individuals to each other, and creation to its original design. All of this happens through Jesus. And we believe that if we're on board with that, we'll begin to see how these pieces of restoration happen. Not only as us coming to know who Jesus is and having that transform who we are, but in the the relationship rifts that might be made whole. In something as small as, this is going to sound really green and really California-y, so just stay stay with me. This is going to sound really California-y. Perhaps we even begin to recycle because we care about the world in which we live. Perhaps that influences our choice of the cars that we drive or the fact that we might not want to drive a car all the time. Perhaps we begin to see Jesus all over our lives, so much so it's like we see him in the little things like recycling, but also in the bigger things where we fight for people's relationships together. And we actually believe that this guy can do something about that. We actually believe that he can bring about healing. We actually believe that he can mend relationships. We actually believe that he can do the ridiculous things that we see him doing all throughout Scripture. I think for a lot of us, we've left that behind and we've let Jesus be that comfortable security blanket that gives us a ticket out of hell. And I think when we do that, we really cheapen what the gospel is and we completely, as I'll try to demonstrate, completely misunderstand what the gospel is all about. We believe that Jesus is restoring through his life, death, and his, his resurrection, and that's the climax of the story. But we also think that through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus provides us with an example of how we then do suffering. In 1 Peter 2, he's also looking at Isaiah 53, and he says in verse 21, to this you were called, and this is said in the context of oppression. This is said in the context of people dominating a people group and forcing them into perhaps slavery, into oppression, into all these things, like persecution is at the heart of 1 Peter, a persecution that most of us do not know because we are comfortable and we live in America and we can play Xbox and we can go home and watch football and be okay. In verse 21, it says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Going into Isaiah 53, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that you might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All of this is not just a get out of hell free card. All of this is an example. It's an image of what it can look like for us because of what Jesus has done. Suffering happens. For the pastors who say that it doesn't or that we can overcome if we have just enough faith, I think that they're selling us a lie. I believe that it's more important to see this example of who Jesus is in the midst of suffering and say, strive to be that. 
when those inevitable things take place in your life, when death happens, when divorce happens, when brokenness happens, when exile happens, take on the example of Jesus and how he suffered. Philippians 2 does the same thing. We looked at this verse last week. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let him be your example. Let him be your model. Let him be that thing that you look to for guidance. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, down to verse 8. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is not just about every head bowed, every eye closed, let's raise a hand. This is not just about repeating the sinner's prayer. This is not just about a commitment card. This is not just about a one-time thing. This is about a lifestyle in which we follow Jesus. And as Paul would go on to say, hopefully we're setting an example where people begin to follow us as we follow Jesus. That's how discipleship happens. And face it, in our community, we've seen discipleship happen in how some of our own handle the suffering, the stress, the difficulties, and the brokenness of life. From the very huge things to the very mundane things. And I am challenged consistently and always to be an example of that to you. And I know that I will let you down. But hopefully when we have these things ringing in the back of our heads, this idea of having the same mindset of Christ, the one who... um, allows us to overcome, the one who has overcome on our behalf, but also just having this mindset, we begin to see perhaps ourselves as the servant. And I don't, I say that with some trepidation because we're not the ones who are bearing the iniquities of the world. We're not the ones who are paving the way, but we are in a sense the hands and feet of Jesus. We are in a sense the ones who suffer to fill up what is lacking in his suffering. We are the ones who become who he is. I hope that we take that call seriously. I hope that we don't just see this text in Isaiah 53 as Jesus fulfilled, done, don't have to think about it anymore. We miss the good bits of Israel. We also miss the good bits where we have something to do with that as well, where we take on his example and we live it out when we face unjust oppression. This is what Isaiah has been talking about the whole time is Israel be a light to the nations. They didn't do it. For us as a group, the call still remains. Be a light to the nations. Are we doing it? Has Jesus radically transformed us enough where that becomes something that we actually care about? Or are we just okay over here because I'm not going to hell, so got that that going for me. Or is that something that completely alters who we are? We begin to see the broken, we begin to see the hurting, we begin to see those people and meet the needs where the needs are. Second question is, why does the servant suffer? This text seems clear enough that the servant does not suffer because of his own sins. And in many ways, this forces us to go beyond seeing the servant as Israel or us because we have many sins. If it comes down to it, I don't want to say that we suffer because of our sins because I don't believe that's true. But I do believe that we are sinful people and we, in a sense, need help. We need something that we can't provide for ourselves just by the resolve of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't, by enough will and self-discipline, earn or merit everything that God needs from us. The servant suffered for the sins of others. 
We see this all throughout this text. He took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We have been healed through him by his wounds, the iniquity of all of us. Like this is what this person was, was fighting for. He was fighting for you and me and everyone in between, doing something that we could not do for ourselves. How does it work, though, um, in this text, how the servant suffers and what that has to do with us. This is a question I get all the time in Bible class. How does Jesus' death on the cross, or in this sense, how does the suffering of the servant have anything to do with me? We don't receive any answers in this particular text as to what this looks like, but this much is clear. The servant was not coerced. He was not forced. He goes willingly, and he suffers willingly for his people. And I think that we can consider it this way. A lot of times when we think about this, we think about a legal transaction where um, if I owe somebody something then, and I can't pay it, then Jonathan shows up and he pays it for me. That's like a legal transaction. There's a debt that has to be paid. Jonathan pays it for me and I can't do it for myself. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate that. We often think that Jesus in substitutionary atonement, that's the theological terms, takes on what we can't do and becomes that for us. I think there's truth in that, but we need other images as well. So it works like this. Yahweh, or God, has been demonstrating a willingness to forgive for centuries in this particular set of texts. He's been one who is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving. Early on it says that he carries the wrongdoing of his people. He puts it on his back and he carries it through the desert for them because they can't do it themselves. He's the one that takes all of our junk and owns it. And that's what he's been doing for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. And we come to this text. Forgiveness, that act of carrying the weight, costs something. The wronged party absorbs the cost instead of requiring compensation. So they take the debt and they put it on their back and they absorb it. They forgive it. It's gone. So God's been doing this for centuries and centuries and centuries. It hasn't been working. And this idea of forgiveness costs people something. Even for us, it costs something. If your parents wrong you, it costs you something to absorb that. If your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife wrongs you, it costs you something to absorb that and to forgive that. That's why it's so hard. That's why when we talk about communion and we talk about if you need to forgive somebody or if you need to talk to somebody, then do it. But we understand that that's the most incredibly difficult conversation that some of you will ever have. And begins like this. Hey, Dad. Or hey, Mom. You know, the one that was supposed to love you more than anything else in the world. The one that perhaps has wronged you. The one that perhaps has left you, abandoned you. That forgiveness costs you something. But all throughout the pages of Scripture, we see how important this is because even Jesus says, if you can't forgive others, my dad will not forgive you. It costs us something. And God, for centuries, has been absorbing this cost. He's been taking this on so that he can forgive his people. But then finally, the servant, because this seemingly hasn't been working, it hasn't fostered this mentality in Israel of, being faithful to the covenant, following God in everything, in every way, being completely sold out to him. The servant externalizes the offering of forgiveness. He provides the people with a different image. He says, you know what God's been doing for all this time, absorbing the cost of this? Yeah, this is what it looks like. It looks like a marred face. It looks like a bruised back. It looks like someone who takes on suffering, who bears our stuff. The image that's here is not just, in a sense, 
legal, one for one. The image is, you want to see what carrying your sin looks like? It looks like that. Suffering, hurt, abandonment. It looks like this line at the end of Isaiah 53 where it says, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He carried our sin. He took it. He owned it when it wasn't his. I think when we step back and we perhaps put Jesus in Isaiah 53 too quickly, we miss the depth and the richness of this message. Perhaps for some of you as you sit right now, it's late, it's monotone, I'm very soothing, my voice has a little raspiness into it, it's got a little little honey, a little sweetness. But hear this. This text, which yes, has been fulfilled in some sense by Israel throughout their history where they suffer. We see that repeatedly over and over. It has been fulfilled in a way that no one else has fulfilled it in Christ. Hopefully this will become clear through his death and through his resurrection, through his sinless life, through his teachings, through the things that he had showed to his disciples, through love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. He demonstrates what it looks like to carry the weight of a sin that is not his own. He demonstrates what it looks like to bear burdens and to take on the cost of forgiveness. I hope that we don't cheapen that gospel so much where it just becomes this thing that makes us feel good about ourselves, where it just becomes this thing where we can get away with other stuff, where we can be okay knowing that we're not going to go to hell, but it doesn't change who we are in any way, shape, or form. The gospel, friends, is not just about heaven or hell. It's about life, life that begins right now, life that's offered in a different and better way where we learn what it looks like to suffer, where we learn what it looks like to carry the weight of other people, where we look, demonstrate what it looks like to love as Christ loved us. I hope that that gets us excited. I hope that that gives us motivation and passion so that when we do face issues, We can look to a Savior who has loved us, who has owned our own shortcomings and allowed us to see hope and life and mercy. That, to me, is what Advent is all about. Seeing that, expecting that, understanding that there's hope in the person and work of Jesus and understanding that it's not just this thing that floats up out here, it's something that impacts who we are each and every day, and I hope that it impacts the decisions that we make each and every day and how we love those around us.